Good morning, Restore. Uh, so if you're just now joining us this morning, uh, I want to say welcome. My name's Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're going through a series that I am very excited about. And some of you are like, he always says he's very excited about everything he preaches on, which is good. Like, really, I am really excited about the series that we're in this morning, um, particularly because we're looking at what does it mean to be church? And, and the reason that I'm excited about it uh, is a couple of reasons. One, um, I believe from the bottom of my heart, <clears throat> sorry, I didn't plan on getting emotional, that the church is the hope of the world. Those of us that are seated here this morning are a part of God's restorative plan to make his creation whole again. And it includes you. Like it is the most sacred privilege that we could be, like that we could ask for, that we could be a part of, that we could have been invited into. God in his mercy, in his infinite wisdom, who hung galaxies in the star. Like, if you look up at night and you see the infinite number of stars, looked at you and said, I'm going to use you to bring about my good purposes in my creation, in my world. And this is church. Okay, this is, this is how I would define church. It's, it's being a part of God's redemptive, restorative, that's why we're named Restore, his plan to bring about his mercy and his goodness and his redemption to his creation. And it involves you, and it involves me. So what we're going to do this morning is we're actually looking at Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And the reason that I like this letter in particular is that it's, it's probably Paul's first letter that he ever wrote. So it is it's almost like this raw, sort of unfiltered, uh, like very early letter that we have to Paul writing to a church. And so in many, many ways, I want you to think about this for a second. This is really one of the first times in the ancient world, like in the history of the world, we see the word church in a letter on paper. And Paul writes to his church in Thessalonica. He's writing to an entirely new thing that has happened. Because God in his mercy came down in flesh as Jesus, bore our sins on a cross, conquered death, and was raised from the dead. Like, the ancient world is still trying to understand this, process it, like, figure out what has just happened. And this is this letter Paul writes to his first church. Church, here's what I want from you. Church, here's what I want for you church. This is what you are. Like, this is Paul's sort of almost, uh, like, unfiltered kind of tender moment in which he speaks to this new group of people who have started to gather together, and he tries to encourage them, help them see who they are, help them understand and form their identity. And the reason that I, I want us to, to really uh, go into Thessalonians with Paul is because it gives us this very, I think, unfiltered view of what the beauty of church was always meant to be. 
So if if you wanted to like like in in one sentence, really, if I could if I could summarize what is church, I'm gonna try and do this in one sentence. Actually, it might end up being two. I'm sorry. But one or two sentences, like if, if you really want to ask me, like, what is church? Uh, I was terrible at grammar. That's why I'm not sure if this is going to end up being a compound sentence or not. That's really what it is. Um, it's this. It's a place where strange friendships participate in the redemptive mercy of Jesus Christ with one another. It's a place where strange friendships come together and are formed Bonds that are life-giving, that are merciful, that are full of compassion and gentleness and meekness, just like our Savior, form with one another and become part of God's redemptive plan to bring about his goodness to the world around us. It's where our sins are forgiven, so we live free. It's where we learn to be merciful to one another, so we live like him. And as we do this, we learn to be a source of life and goodness to one another, just as the way that Jesus is a source of life and goodness to us. And so that's Paul's primary concern in his letter, this very first letter that he writes. As you read the letter, there's so many things about the letter that are foreign to the ancient world that are just like you wouldn't hear somebody say the kinds of words that Paul says. And like we've, we've heard that over and over again, so we can lose I don't know, some of the, like, uniqueness to it, some of the sort of the, the, the like, the raw, like, compassion that, that flows from Paul's, Paul's words in this letter. But if you're in the ancient world and you're reading this for the first time, like, you stop and you kind of ask that question, like, what is this strange group of people? So one of the reasons that this is, by and large, strange is Thessalonica was a rather rough part of the ancient world. You may not know, we're not going to dive into all of the history of that, uh, but Thessalonica was relatively hostile towards outsiders. So, so it wasn't like modern day where, I don't know, you graduate college, you're like, I don't know, I like surfing. I'm going to go live in California. And like you pack up and you move to California. Like in the ancient world, you didn't do that. If you did that, you probably would end up starving and dying. Because there weren't social systems like set up in place, there weren't structures set up in place. And so you couldn't just like as an outsider of one part of the world show up at another part of the world. And so the first question you want to ask, like what, why so odd about this letter, is that Paul's writing to Thessalonica, like how did Paul even get there? Like how did he show up to this group of people and say, hey, I want y'all to love each other the way that I've loved you. I want, to pour, I want y'all pouring your lives out for one another the way that I've poured my life out to you. I want you to stay faithful to Jesus in spite of the difficulties, the way that the way that I have stayed faithful to him. Like, how does this happen? The entire letter is strange. Like, it doesn't make sense. And so this morning, as, as we unpack the letter, um, I want us to hear this. Um, particularly, like, if you've noticed that Paul writes, when he starts Thessalonica, he says, hey, uh, greetings to you from Paul and Timothy, uh, and Titus. like, he gives multiple people, like, he lists multiple people in this letter. This alone is strange. This is one of the only times in all of ancient literature, by the way, that we have a letter that's addressed with more than one author. Because you didn't do that. Like, what Paul's saying is, like, there's others of you out there, not just me, who love and care and see you and are praying for you. 
And so the entire letter starts off with an address. Hey, this is Paul and Silas or Timothy and Titus writing to you, thinking of you. This in of itself is strange. Like we, we've no other, there's only one other actually ancient document, ancient letter in the entire ancient world that has co-addressed in the way that Paul writes this letter, which tells us that Paul is writing to them, hey, there are other people, friends that are friends of yours, that are friends of Jesus, that are thinking about you, writing to you, longing to see you again. And so what the letter really shows us is that the church, through the power of God, brings people together from different walks of life, different spaces in the world, and breaks down cultural barriers to break into the community at Thessalonica. Paul most likely had to know somebody. Well, who do we think uh, he knew? She doesn't show up in Thessalonica, but she shows up in Acts. Her name was Lydia. We think of her as she was probably working uh, as someone who made cheap dyes, uh, like the color clothing, and Paul's this intellectual giant, and yet somehow they form this friendship with one another, and she most likely introduces him to this community in Thessalonica. And so what you see is all of a sudden these friendships that don't make sense to anybody else looking on the outside, all of a sudden becoming this beautiful picture of a God who loves and redeems and restores and cares. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're in the third we're really about halfway through the letter. Um, we're going to read Paul's words, but Paul this morning is going to want to show us a couple of things. He's going to want to show us that for Paul, like love is uh, faithfulness. Love is like keeping the trust of one another alive. And here's what I mean by that. Paul's hope, Paul's heart for his people is that they would continue to trust one another. Because for Paul, trust and hope are very closely connected. And this is what I mean by this. As long as, for Paul, as long as those people can learn to trust one another because of the redemptive work that God is doing in their life, he thinks they can keep the hope of Jesus alive. So this works intuitively, and I think we know this to some extent, right? Uh, Like in marriage, if you lose trust in your spouse, that's usually when you lose hope the marriage will be anything that you want it to be. And I'm not talking about just like trust and like faithfulness, so you're going to stay faithful to me. I'm talking about just trust in general, like do you have my best interest in mind? Do you see who I am? Do you care? Like losing trust often, like not far after you lose trust, you usually lose hope. Right? Like at some point, people lose trust in government, people lose trust in one another, and when that starts to happen, hope is usually the first thing that begins to slip away. And Paul's heart for this church that he's writing in Thessalonica this morning is, I want you to remain hopeful. So, so I get a sense, like, as a pastor, and I've been a pastor that long, but I am, I am pastoring in a post-pandemic world, and by and large, one of the senses that I get is we are living now in a world that has primarily lost trust and is therefore losing hope. This last year, I don't know if you realize this or not, um, this is one of the most violent years in our country. Like, you're starting to see the effects of, of people who no longer trust one another and then no longer have hope that they're safe, 
that they're someone's neighbor anymore, like that everyone around them is going to not hurt them, is not going to harm them, right? You're starting to see the effects of people becoming more defensive and more agitated and more aggressive. Like, if you don't believe me, just get on Facebook. Like, the way in which people will now attack one another and assume the worst to one another, like, I'm beginning, like, we're beginning to see the effects of people who have stopped trusting and have started to lose hope. And so Paul is wanting to push back against this and say, don't lose your trust of one another. Don't lose your hope. Jesus is on his throne. He's orchestrating all things. You are his. He's making you his, and he's making you like him. And so Paul's hope here is to keep their, like, kindle their trust of one another. Okay, so as we, as we move through this series, one of my hopes is that this series will help lay a foundation for us. Sorry, we're a brand new church. We've been around less than a year. And so I like the idea of looking at a letter to another brand new church, if not like the brand new church in the ancient world. And my hope is that we can begin to see like what is it that brought them together and made, the, like how is it that their identity was formed and made them who they are? And one of the things that Paul is primarily concerned about in this new identity is that they would maintain trust towards one another. And this is so, so difficult because we are wired, I think, to not trust one another. And I think this is an antithesis. This is the opposite of what God is wanting for his people as he makes them new and shapes them to be like him, to bear his image. He wants them, he wants us, he wants you, he wants me to learn to open ourselves up to trust one another again. And so that's what Paul's going to do primarily in this letter. So let, let, me, let me read it for us to get started here, uh, and then we'll jump in. Starting in, uh, we're going to be in Thessalonians, we're going to be starting in verse 1, chapter 3. Finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy to visit you. He is our brother and God's co-worker. This is what Timothy is one of Paul's co-signers in this letter. In proclaiming the good news of Christ, we sent him to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith, and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles you were going through. But you know that we are destined for such troubles. Even while we were with you, we warned you that the troubles would come soon. And they did, as you well know. This is why, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your family was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless. But now Timothy has just returned, bringing us good news about your faith and love. He reports that you always remember our visit with joy and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. So we've been greatly encouraged in the midst of our troubles and sufferings, dear brothers, dear brothers and sisters, because you have remained strong in your faith. It gives us new life. It gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. 
how we thank God for you. Because of you, we have great joy as we enter into God's presence. Night and day, we pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again, to fill the gaps in your faith. May God, our Father, and Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon. And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow. Just as our love for you overflows, may he, as a result, make your heart strong and blameless and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes again with all of his holy people. Amen. Let me pray for us and we'll get started this morning. Well, Father, for these next few minutes while we gather around um, your scriptures, Father, would you do a couple of things for us? Would you help us? And would you have mercy on us? Would you have mercy on me? Father, would you forgive me for my own hypocrisy, for my own inconsistencies with the way that I love people? Father, for the way that I'll trust people? Father, as a church, would you have mercy on us? We need you. Would you show us how to trust one another? love one another just the way that you've loved us? Would you show us how to trust you? We don't always do that. Would you show us how to love you? We don't always love you well. We need you. We're entirely dependent on your mercy and your goodness, Jesus. Please be with us this morning. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. So uh, a couple of things. Let's, let's start here uh, at the beginning. Uh, Paul says, uh, starting in verse uh, 3, or, I'm sorry, starting in verse 2, we sent Timothy to visit you. He is our brother and God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We sent him to strengthen you and encourage you in your faith and to keep you from being shaken by troubles that you were going through. But you know that we were destined for such troubles. Even when we were with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come, and they did, as you well know. So, so one of the things I want to uh, just stop here and, and draw out um, from, from what we see in Tim, or what we see Paul saying here uh, in his letter is this. Paul is pointing out to the church in Thessalonians, I'm wanting you to draw in towards one another in faith and love, and yet expect to feel extremely discouraged in your attempts, in your efforts, like in the moments in which you do this, expect to feel disheartened. Okay, so so Paul knows what he's asking is a tall order. He knows asking them to love one another is going to directly put them in positions where they might be misunderstood, where they might be taken advantage of, or in the church's case in Thessalonica, like literally persecuted, like physical and spiritual and like safety opposition to who they are. Paul knows that the order in which he's asking them to do the thing that he's asking them to do, love one another, is going to come, be accompanied by great difficulty. And he's concerned about this. So, so th- this is um, one of the harder things that I think uh, we, like, so when I say, like, we're a church where I really want to strive to love one another, this sounds really good until you realize it's people, that you're being called to love. 
So, so we watch Frozen a lot in my house um, because I have a three-year-old daughter. Okay, some of you are like, That's, why do you watch Frozen so many much? I have a three-year-old daughter, uh, and we watch Frozen on repeat. Um, but one of the songs in Frozen is Reindeer Are Better Than People. Um, there's a character in Frozen that's best buds with a reindeer. Um, like, intuitively, like, we kind of know that if I'm going to love other people, like, it's going to lead to my discouragement. It's going to lead to disheartenment. Like, people are messy. They're unpredictable. They're selfish. They're, hypo- like, they're hypocritical. I'm this way sometimes. They're this way sometimes. Like, why even bother? This is what Paul is actually writing to encourage them about. Because he knows, as this new community in Thessalonica that is built around love, Thessalonica, again, is a difficult community. The first thing that he is going to happen is like they're going to experience discouragement. They're going to find themselves invalidated in certain ways. They're going to find themselves written off in certain ways. They're going to find themselves dismissed in certain ways. And so for most of us, the alter- like reindeer are a better alternative than people. But Paul does something in this letter that he only does here, by the way. This is the only time this actually happens in your New Testament. It's easy for us to miss, but Paul writes uh, in uh, verse 6, he's going to use good news twice. I don't know if y'all caught that. Starting uh, in verse 2, he writes, We sent our brother Timothy proclaiming the good news of Christ. Then down in verse 6, He says, but now Timothy has just returned, bringing us the good news about your faith and love. Okay, so Paul uses the same word there twice, and he connects the good news of Jesus with the good news that they are faithfully loving one another. That their faithfulness, which by the word, when Paul uses that word faithfulness, it's synonymous with the word trust. Like they're building these trusting relationships in which they love one another, faithfulness and love. And so for Paul, their relationships that are beginning to form, that are beginning to be shaped, are connected to the good news of Jesus. Okay, so, 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 so what do I mean by that? For Paul, so I think a lot of us, we want a privatization of our faith. We like the idea that God has forgiven us of our sins. Like, that's a good news. It's beautiful news, right? It's the kind of news that made me want to start a church. But for many of us, we want to kind of privatize it after that. Like, I've got my faith. Like, God has been good to me. Like, does it stop there? And the reality is for Paul, the relationships that they begin to form with one another— are not just like secondary offshoots. It's not like, oh, thank God he's forgiven you and y'all are off the hook for divine punishment. Now go and just live, like, now go and do whatever. What Paul's beginning to see is the relationships that you are now forming with one another is encapsulated in this good news. This good news that God has come and saved the world is now evident among you because of the way that you're treating one another the way that you're loving one another, the way that you care about one another, the way that you show compassion to one another, Paul sees this very much intertwined with the gospel, not an offshoot of it. Paul will do this, he'll make this argument over and over again, by the way. 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, the passage that people read at weddings all the time, love is faithful, love is kind. How does he start that? 
if I have all these other religious things I'm doing, if I speak in tongues, if I'm giving my body over, like I'm giving tons of money, I'm speaking in the tongues of angels, but I don't have love, none of this matters. For Paul, the mission of the church encapsulates the love of God and the good news is that as our hearts are changed, as we are learned, as we learn to be forgiven by God and seen by Him and rescued by Him, we then become shaped by that. And we can treat each other with the same kind of love and the same kind of mercy and the same kind of gentleness and the same kind of goodness. And so for Paul, as he writes this letter, this good news is yes, it's this good news that God has come incarnate. Jesus has died for their sins and has resurrected, for like overcome death to unite them with God the Father in holy communion with him. And also, the good news is now humanity is not left to itself anymore to tear itself apart, to preserve its own interests, the good news is God has not left us to our own devices. He's not left us to our own definitions of love. And so for Paul, love very much has to do with trust. So we started by, I started opening us by talking about trust, this idea that he wants them to maintain trust in one another. Okay, so this is a tall order for a couple of reasons. One, like I realize people are very messy. Two, there are a lot of us that have been hurt because we've been trusting. We've trusted someone before, right? And we found that just kind of thrown in our face. And so the idea of trust is, is like, it's hard on two levels. One, it means we have to no longer only serve our own interests, right? We have to open ourselves up to someone else uh, and entrust part of ourselves to them. But two, that means we also have to process through any of the times that we have trusted someone and have found ourselves hurt or have found ourselves in a place where this isn't, like it didn't work well for us. And the only way that that's possible, the only way that any of this is possible, the only way that any of this is feasible is if God has first loved you. And so he says, like, he starts with the good news of Jesus Christ that has been proclaimed to you. Jesus has forgiven you, and because Jesus has forgiven you, you can start to trust one another again. And so listen to this. A big part of you learning to trust God. Okay, so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push us just a little bit this morning. We're, we're used to the privatization of faith, and so very often we think that trusting God uh, involves us, like, learning to trust him. And this is a part of it. I'm not telling you it's not a part of it, but listen, there's a second part of learning to trust God, and that's learning to trust the work that he is doing in the lives of the people around you. And your spouse and your kids, and the people in your small group, right? Because otherwise, what we're really doing uh, is we're getting to a place of like, God, I'm so glad you're doing all this great work in my heart, but all these other jokers, like, I don't know what's going on with them. I'm not going to trust them. My spouse, I don't know if I can trust my spouse. 
And part of what the gospel is, is this learning to trust that God is working in the world, and that means at some point taking the step to learn to trust that he is working in the lives of the people around you. Okay, so, um, you know, my commitment as a pastor is I I never want to preach something to you guys that I wasn't challenged by. Uh, And selfishly, maybe, even. Like, this is one of those weeks where I preach probably to myself more than you guys. Um, Like, y'all are, you're like, wait, but we're here too. Uh, Like, I I am hoping to preach to you guys. But, but quickly as a pastor, one of the, one of the things that I realize, like, as, as, as our church starts to grow, like, as, like, uh, I, I wrestle with my own insecurities and my own, like, what is God doing? One of the things that I wrestled with quickly, quickly realized was I don't trust people. And so we justify this in, kind of, in certain kinds of ways. And, I, and, like, I justify it, and, well, I've trusted people before, and it didn't work out then, so I'm, I'm just being smart. That's what it is. But one of the things that I actually began to realize pretty quickly was that sometimes saying, I don't trust you, I don't trust you with this, or I don't trust you in this situation, is to actually say, I don't trust that God's doing something in your heart that you can be trustworthy with. Just because there are times in my life like I haven't followed through in ways that I wanted, like doesn't mean that I need to assume that you won't either because God in his mercy is also changing and shaping and molding you as well. And so when it comes to trust, like we, we want to privatize it as much as possible. My faith is in Jesus, and that's true, and that's a beautiful thing to say. But here's, here's the thing I want to challenge us with is I don't, I don't think you can say my faith is in Jesus without saying also I love his people. And I'm trusting that he's doing something in their lives. Right? Like, like it's very easy for us, particularly nowadays, to feel like social media and like online is exactly, like we can get all our kind of church from there, online sermons and Instagram feeds and all of that. And there's some great spiritual content that is produced in social media. But for Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ includes the people which Jesus is saving. And that's more than just him. And it's more than just me. It's more than just, like, this internal thing that God's doing in my heart, although it's happening. For Paul... To say, I am learning to trust God means I am learning to also trust that he is good and active and working in the people around me. And so when Paul says, I want you to have hope, right, this faith and love that Paul speaks about in this first part of the letter, what he's saying is, I want you to keep the hope of Jesus alive, and I want you to do that by reminding yourselves constantly that God's working in and among all of you. He's doing things. He's redeeming, and he's restoring. Right, so I shared with, so before you guys show up on Sunday mornings, we, prayer team, or worship team, setup team, AV team, myself, the staff, uh, all get together and pray. We pray for the morning. We pray for you guys. And one of the things that I shared with them this morning is, uh, like, I struggle just as a person with resentment. It's one of the things that I just, I'm constantly building resentment towards, towards people. Because in my mind, I've got all these things that I want to change about the people around me. 
I want them to, I want them to be this uh, differently. I want them to respond differently in this situation. I want them to wake up here. I want them to see this. Like, and so, so much of my life is sort of spent being preoccupied with all the different ways that I want people to change. And so often, or so rarely, am I ever praying, God, would you open my eyes up to the ways that you're changing them? Not according to what I think they need to be, how they need to be changed, but how you're redeeming and restoring and loving and shaping and cultivating. You see, this is the only way we actually learn to love one another. This is the only way you'll actually ever learn to love your spouse, your children, is if we can get to a space where we can say, I trust that God's doing something in your heart. And rather than me, like, inserting myself onto you and kind of shaping, like, trying to shape you with my own agendas, kind of take a step back and ask myself, like, how is, how's God shaping you? What is God doing in your life? This is the only way we will ever build trust with one another. It's the only way we'll ever actually build any real compassion or mercy towards one another is by being able to relinquish some of the control and some of the, some of the resentments and some of the insistence that we have of how God ought to work in every situation. So there's, there's a second thing that Paul's trying to do. He's wanting to keep their trust in one another alive. He's also wanting to encourage them in the midst of great suffering. So he says here in verse 7, uh, starting in verse 7, uh, so we begin greatly to encourage you in the midst of our troubles and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, because you have remained strong in your faith. Listen to what he says in verse 8 here. It gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. I want you to just, let's stop there with this verse for a second. It gives us life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. Your faith is giving us what? Life. Your faithfulness, your obedience to God is life for us. Okay, this right here in one, one verse, and this is really, this is one verse, one sentence. This is, this is church. This is what Paul's wanting for them. The faithfulness as you guys persevere, even in the midst of difficulties, is a source of life for us. Okay, so, so here's the reality of, of all this that we've talked about. Um, this is where we'll close this morning of trust and, and hope and faithfulness and all of this that Paul's wanting to tie in together for this church. And this is the, this is the harder reality of it. So much of our learning to trust one another is going to come in the midst of our suffering. In the midst of the, the, the harder parts of our lives, the spaces of our lives that are complicated or don't make sense, the spaces in our lives that we feel frustrated with or defeated by, so much of that space is where we're going to discover the life that God is offering us to one another through one another. Here's what I mean by that. It's often our suffering that actually helps us wake up and hear the words that God's speaking to us. It's not fun. I'm not encouraging, so go out and find suffering. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But learning to trust one another is learning to suffer with one another. 
It's learning to open up the more complicated, messy spaces of our lives, the vulnerability like that we have in those spaces and sharing that with one another. There's no other way around it. I remember when I learned this very evidently a couple of years ago. Um, so um, next week we're going to be sharing a little bit more of just a vision of what is Restore, how did it start, what's some of the theology that's formed it. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but w- what you guys may not know is like it took us several, several years before we, we really said yes to starting Restore. Uh, and a big part of that was just some of my own um, mental health struggles with obsessive compulsive disorder. It was a space where I didn't feel like I could I could really carry that and carry a church and um, spend a lot of, like we'd been approached about starting this many, many years before we actually said yes to it. But I'll remember the the, the moment in which I, 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 like there was a breakthrough for me. Um, I was I was with my past, a friend of mine, the pastor, Zach McCoy, he's the, one of the pastors that helped us start this church. Uh, and I was just sharing with just him some of my own struggles um, and some of just my own humiliation that I felt around some of those struggles. And I remember just like, part of the way that that manifests for me is my own OCD. It's very accusatory. I'm constantly, I'm very scrupulous in my conscience. Like I'm constantly feeling guilty about things. I'm constantly feeling accused. Like I'm constantly running things over and over and over again in my head. And so when I finally like cued them into, because they were wanting to pump a bunch of money to help us start, like invest a bunch of things and resources to help us start. And I remember it's like, I like, I gotta like, I need to like share with you, like show you what it is that you are like investing in. Uh, because I feel like it would be like deceitful not to. Um, and I remember the day that I finally shared everything. Like I thought I was going to get fired. Uh, like I thought they were going to be like, well, I'm glad we didn't go down that road with that guy. Um, but I'll never forget what he said after, after all of that. I was feeling completely exposed, completely vulnerable. Somebody had seen every, every piece of my life, all the suffering, all the parts of it that I'd work very hard to hide. And he said, you know, Justin, no one's accusing you. God's interest isn't to accuse you. When he was paraphrasing, he was quoting John 8, right? The woman at the well. She gets caught in the act of adultery. Jesus defends her publicly. And this shame, like in her most shameful moment, in her most like exposed moment, she's been caught being unfaithful. They bring her to Jesus, and Jesus looks at her and says, where have your accusers gone? Now, here's the funny thing about this. Um, I'd heard that passage over and over again. I even preached on it in seminary. I even had, like, I had a class where they had me preach on it, and somebody's like, I've never heard somebody preach so well on John 8 before. Um, like, I'd heard that over and over again. I'd preached on it. Like, I could tell you all the nuances of John 8 and how it wasn't part of the original manuscripts and where it came from, all of those. But it wasn't until exposed and vulnerable, I heard the words of a faithful friend, another Christian, someone with whom the Spirit is working, say, you know what? God's not interested in accusing you. That something in my heart clicked. And I, I called him the next day and I said, we'll do it. Ten years of resisting because of that, all it took was one moment of vulnerability and somebody to see. And they use scripture, like they use words from God that I'd heard over and over again, but it wasn't until they, like, 
someone empowered by the Spirit, given the gifts of the Spirit, like forgiven by Christ, one of his children, listening and then speaking that I heard and everything changed. This is what vulnerability and our suffering does. This is what Paul's wanting to do here. You are greatly troubled. Your souls are dis, like discouraged and disheartened. I don't want you to keep faith in one another alive. I want you to keep trusting one another. God is faithful and he's good and he has not given up on you yet. And part of the ways that you're going to see that and cling to that hope for that is through one another. So trust one another. And when you've got others in your community who are filled with the Spirit, who are following after Jesus, who have been saved by Him, learn to trust those people. They may not be perfect. We're not perfect. None of us are. But learn to trust the work of the Spirit as he works in the lives of the people around you. This is part of what this good news is, that yes, God has saved us from our sins. Verse 2, this, this good news of Jesus, this gospel, as Paul will call it, also includes this good news. He uses the same exact word of how y'all have faithfully, didn't use the word y'all, it was my Texas translation, how you are faithfully loving one another and persevering with one another this is Paul's picture of the gospel. It's grabbed a hold of your hearts, it's softening them, and it's changing everything for each of you. So cling to that. Live into that. Maintain awareness of how God is changing and shaping and cultivating others around you. And get ready to celebrate that. And get ready to trust that right? Open yourself to that. That's what Paul's heart here is in, in 1 Thessalonians 3. Uh, let me pray for us uh, as we get ready to take communion and close out with a final worship song. Well, Father, um, we love you. Thank you for your good news that we are forgiven, that we're made whole in you um, through the sacrifice of your son, through the resurrection, through the overcoming of death. We have new life in you, Father. Father, would you help us to celebrate that, to live with this real sense of hope that you are good, that you're doing good things in our lives, in my life, but you're also doing good things, things that are worth celebrating, things in which we can find actual real life and real hope in the lives of the people sitting to the left and to the right of us and to front and back and behind us. And everywhere else, Father, your hope is being manifested in our hearts and in our souls. Your goodness has been poured out on us. Father, we will discover the extent of that goodness. We'll see the beauty of it. Like, we'll get excited over it. We'll find hope and life in it when we learn to see one another. We learn to see what you're doing in each other's lives and celebrate that rather than be skeptical of it, be afraid of it. Would you help us to trust and each trust one another, open ourselves up to it, even in the midst of our own suffering or discomfort or confusion or disorientation or whatever it is that we have, Father. Show us how to love the way that you've loved us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.